It's good to see each of you this evening. Appreciate you being able to be here. Sister Judy is with us. We appreciate that so much. If you would, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 5. We're going to begin in this chapter. Now, we will have a passage that we're going to stay in, but it's not going to be this one, but this will get us started. Isaiah chapter 5, we're going to notice verses 20 through 24. Isaiah writes, Woe unto them that call evil good, and good evil, that put darkness for light, and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes, and prudent in their own sight. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine, and men of strength to mingle strong drink, which justify the wicked for reward, and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. Therefore as the fire devoureth the stubble, and the flame consumeth the chaff, so their root shall be as rottenness, and their blossoms shall go up as dust. Because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts, and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel." I don't know if there's a more relevant passage in the Bible today that should be preached in light of Americans, America's culture. In the past 50 years, a nation that once, for the most part, lived by biblical and godly principles has sunk into the deepest depths of moral bankruptcy. We look around the things that are, that are happening and we see that with very little opposition, things are getting worse and worse. Within the last five decades, we have seen a rise of legalized murder. Those who support that prefer the word abortion. We see uh, that most people would uh, be more comfortable with terms such as that as really what they are. Homosexuals were not parading in the streets five decades ago, and they certainly were not kissing for the camera on NFL draft day. Things like that were not happening. One could actually go to a movie and not be bombarded with vulgarities and nudity and bad language and things of that nature. That's not so today. Well, what happened? What happened that would cause a nation of people to go from a nation who who tried to live, for the most part, by biblical principles to one who simply does not even want to hear about the Bible. Maybe it's the same thing that has caused much of our nation to defend lying politicians. Maybe it is the same things that have caused much of our nation to support ideals that are so foreign to the Bible that it, it is embarrassing to even think about it. I believe that the author of the book of Judges could just as easily be speaking about today's America as he was during the time of the darkest period in the history of Israel. Judges 2, 10-11, And there arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord, nor the works which He had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. But still, why? Why is that the case? When we move over into the New Testament and we begin to study the account of the rich man and Lazarus, I think we can locate the source of the problem. 
And this is really the text upon which we're going to spend a majority of our time this evening. Why did the rich man lift up his eyes, being in torments? Why was it that Lazarus was in the bosom of Abraham, being comforted after a life of pure misery? Maybe it was because one was rich and the other was poor. Well, I don't believe that's the answer, and I know you don't either. Neither person entered their reward because of the financial situations in which they lived. They entered into their reward because of the way they lived in those situations. And we can see the results. The same things are happening in our time that happened in their time, that happened in the times before them. And we can go all the way back when it became popular to disobey God instead of obeying God. The title of this evening's sermon is Preparing for Eternity. See, the rich man was not preparing for eternity. I don't believe our nation is preparing for eternity. The majority of all the people that live in this world today are not preparing for eternity. There was a woman who had been diagnosed with a terminal illness. And she had been given three months to live, so within these last three months she began to make arrangements for the end of her life and she contacted her minister and invited him over to her house and began to go over some things that she wanted to take place at her funeral service. She talked about the songs that she wanted to be sung. She talked about the dress in which she wanted to be buried. She wanted to have certain scriptures read as... Uh, the ceremony progressed. And then as he was getting ready to leave, she said, well, there's one more thing. So he turned around and he said, well, what is that? She said, well, I want to be buried with a fork in my right hand. The minister stood looking at the woman, not knowing quite what to say, and she, with a grin upon her face, she looked at him and said, that surprises you, doesn't it? He said, well, to be honest, I'm puzzled by the request. And the woman explained this. She says, in all my years of attending church socials and, and potluck dinners, I always remember when the dishes are being cleared, inevitably someone would lean over and whisper in your ear, keep your fork. Something better is coming. She said, that was my favorite part. She said, I could always count on something much better coming, whether it was a silky chocolate cake or a deep dish apple pie. She said it would be something with substance and I just couldn't wait to get a hold of it. She said, so I just want people to see me lying in my casket with my favorite dress, with my Bible in my hand, and with that fork in my right hand. And I want them to pass by and I want them to say, well, what's with the fork? So his eyes welled up with tears of, of joy as he hugged the woman goodbye because he knew this was one of the last times he would get to see her on this side of eternity. But he also knew that the woman had a better grasp of heaven than even he did. She knew that something better was coming. Well, at the funeral, of course, everybody was walking by the woman's casket and they noticed the dress and the Bible and, 
he kept hearing over and over, what's with the fork? And over and over, he kept smiling to himself. Well, during the message, he told the people of the conversation that he had had with his sister, and he also told them about the fork and what it symbolized to her. And then he told them that they likely would not be able to stop thinking about the fork, just as he was not able to stop thinking about the fork. But he was right. So the next time you reach down for your fork, he said, let it remind you, oh so gently, that the best is yet to come. See, the rich man wasn't looking into eternity. He wasn't preparing for that, was he? Most people are not preparing for eternity. They live in this physical life like this physical life is all there is to life. And that it just simply can't get any better than that. Well, if this physical life is all we've got, we're in trouble, aren't we? We're in trouble. In fact, I don't believe that most of these people even enjoy the physical world in a way that God intends for us to enjoy it. God wants us to appreciate His physical world, but just like in the days of Isaiah, He doesn't want us to call good evil and evil good. Let us read the account of the rich man and Lazarus. Open your Bibles to Luke 16. We're going to begin with verse 19. Jesus began to speak saying, There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. He said, Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died, and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell lift up his eyes, being in torments, and saith Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in these flames. But Abraham said, Son, remember thou that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you're tormented. And beside all this, between us and you there's a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. Neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldst send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest... They also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. I think we can glean many answers to the questions we have concerning the way in which most of the world's living today and and hopefully we can take some of these truths and apply them to our lives but if we're going to do that we need to understand the background to this story to this account 
And we need to understand what the Lord's purpose with. Anytime we study a passage in the Bible, there's always an immediate context. Then we're going to find a greater context, and then ultimately there is an overall context. And we see that within passages, within books, and with the Bible as a whole. As a whole, the Bible is about God's love for us, creating us, giving us all that we need in the present and in the future. Loving us so much that He sent His only begotten Son to earth to live as a man and die to be buried in a grave and to come out of it on the third day, to go back to the Father and sit at the right hand of the throne, the position of power, and reign upon His kingdom even until today. Understanding that at one day, at some time in the future, He'll come again and He will gather unto Him those who look like Him, those who talk like Him, those who act like Him, those who are of Him. And then we'll go and we'll be in heaven one day, eternally. That's the overall context. But see, we have to kind of narrow that down just a little bit. We need to look at this context and just back up a little bit so we can understand just a little broader way what Jesus was doing. He was fighting against a self-centered outlook. He did it with a strong argument against self-indulgence. Previously, he had warned, Luke twelve fifteen, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. We all recall the end of the rich fool that was told to us in Luke twelve sixteen through 21. And that was followed with the admonition to trust God for food and clothing, Luke twelve twenty two through 34. By the time the reader gets to the 16th chapter of Luke, he's learned much about the love of money. The first part of Luke 16 is a parable about the unjust servant. He was commended, but not for his thievery, but for his wise use of what he had been given. Taking care of the material things. We all must use our blessings from God in such a way that we will be invited into everlasting Habitation, Luke 16, verse 9. After all, if we cannot be faithful in the unrighteous mammon, we see that in Luke 16, 11, how can we be entrusted with true riches? Well, we can't. Finally, the Lord warned, no servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. He says you can't serve both God and mammon. We have to choose, don't we? Luke sixteen thirteen. Those Pharisees listening to him, they needed to understand that. They had a problem with finances, didn't they? Verse 14. They had a problem with living like they needed to live and they weren't preparing for eternity. And we know that God understands that because verse 15 tells us He knows the hearts of all men. We need to prepare for eternity. The Jews were so materialistic that they wanted a physical kingdom so badly that they would have taken it by force given the opportunity, Luke 16, 16 and 17. And not only that, they coveted other men's wives, verse 18. All of this is the foundation of the rich man and Lazarus. Not a better example could have been told about one man's mistakes in not preparing for eternity. I want us to open up our Bibles and look at this passage. And we're going to begin our first point tonight with two very different people. 
The reader is first introduced to the rich man. Notice how he's dressed in fine purple and, and linen. Purple was a close second to gold in those days, and linen was worth its weight in gold. He was a wealthy man. He must have been very rich because he could eat just exactly whatever he wanted whenever. The Lord said he fared sumptuously every day. It doesn't appear that this rich man had any concerns in this life. He knew he was going to have the material things that he needed. He wasn't concerned with his physical health that I can tell. He wasn't concerned about his finances. After all, he had way more than he could ever spend. He had a beautiful wardrobe with which he could clothe himself daily. He wants to notice though at no point does the Lord indicate to us that the rich man received any of these material things through a dishonest way. He doesn't, doesn't demonstrate to us that he was a criminal in some way, that he was stealing these things. There's nothing wrong with being rich and wealthy in this world. There's not a thing wrong with that. As long as we do not allow our riches and our wealth to come in between us and God. There's nothing wrong with having money, and if we don't have any, it seems like life gets a little tough, doesn't it? But we do not need to have a love for money. Well, what about his family? It's likely that he had a family. It's likely that he had one, and no doubt, if he did have one, they were looked after well, physically speaking. But you know, when I read this account, I don't, I don't think I read anything about rearing godly children. As I read this account, the silence concerning his family is deafening to me. We don't read of, that God said about this man, For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, like he did about Abraham, Genesis 18:19. We don't read about the rich man being complimented in that way. Neither is it said of him, if he had a family, that he brought his children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, Ephesians 6, verse 4. We don't read that about this man. The rich man was not preparing for eternity. Now, I believe he was looking into the future. I do believe that. I believe he was looking at tomorrow and the day after tomorrow, and he was trying to understand how he could make more money, how he could be more comfortable in this life, and I believe he was counting on being here tomorrow. But see, that's not what James told us to count on, was it? James 4, beginning with verse 14, he says, Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, he said, What is your life? He said it was like a vapor. It's here just for a little while, isn't it? And then it goes away. We have to prepare for eternity regarding our personal salvation. But if we have family members, we better be helping them prepare for eternity as well. Jesus didn't talk just stop when He talked about the rich man. He talked about a second person in this account. He talked about the man that was ruined. We go from a rich man to a ruined man. And that was Lazarus. A certain beggar, he said, he was ruined physically speaking. He didn't have anything that he needed. He was destitute of all the blessings of this life. He suffered. We might say that he was on the exact polar opposite of this rich man who had all things that he needed. I think his description is one of sadness as I read about Lazarus. Notice what's missing from his description 
I don't read about any of the clothes he was wearing, if he had any. I don't, I don't know if he had clothes, if they were hand-me-downs, or if they were just pieces of clothing, maybe he wrapped around himself. I don't know how crude they were, how warm they were. I don't know where he slept. Did he sleep in the, in the roadway? Did he sleep on the side? Maybe he slept in the ditch. I don't know. But I know one thing is for sure, he certainly was not clothed in purple. He didn't have fine linen wrapped around him such as the rich man. Not only did this man not have the nice things of life, he didn't have his health. He didn't even have that. He was so weak, as I read this, he couldn't even knock the dogs out of his face when they came licking his sores. Do you know why they call it a sore? Because it hurts. And when we get them, we do not like someone to touch them, do we? And there he laid with the dogs in his face. He didn't have a crumb of bread to eat because that's what he asked for. A crumb. He didn't ask to go in and be entertained by the rich man, which, by the way, was the custom of the day. He didn't ask for that. He wanted a few crumbs that fell from the table. Now, I want us to notice, he didn't ask for the crumbs that fell off the plate onto the table. He wanted that which hit the floor. That doesn't happen all that often, does it? The rich man wasn't worried about this man. He evidently didn't understand the rich man. That our behavior in this life affects our eternal life. He was concerned with filling his own belly. Out of all the people who were around this man, and no doubt many passed him day by day in the streetways, not a single one of them could have had it said about them, inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of my brethren, you have done it unto me. Matthew twenty-five forty-five. But at least someone had compassion enough to sit him by the gate, right? Well, let's slow down a little bit and understand that a little better. The word laid in our passage is translated from the Greek word balo. Balo makes up part of the word parable, which means to throw down. It means to throw violently, to throw down. It appears to me, as I read this passage, that someone would carry the poor, sick beggar and just toss him down by the rich man's gate, full of sores. Ultimately, like all people, the rich man and Lazarus, they died. They left this world, the physical things behind, whether they were good or whether they were bad. And so the Lord goes from two people to our second point to two very different places. Lazarus didn't have any of the good things in this life. None. But his spiritual health was amazing. And because of that, he was taken to a place we know as paradise. The bosom of Abraham. The third heaven Paul talked about. Let us read again one of the most beautiful passages to me in the entirety of the Bible. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels 
into Abraham's bosom. Luke 16, 22. None of the faithful should ever fear death. No one that is living for Christ, that's living like He would have us to live, that has given their lives over to Him, no one should ever fear that journey from life to death because you don't go alone. You're accompanied by heavenly angels. Lazarus went from lacking everything to having everything. Jesus asked this question, Matthew 16, 26. He said, For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, we're about to find out, aren't we? Lazarus had prepared for eternity. He prepared to be where he was. You know, paradise is a very beautiful and a very real place. That makes the place of perdition, known as torments, just as real. And just as bad as paradise is beautiful. Perdition is a place where the rich man found himself. He lift up his eyes, being in torments, and saith, Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. What a change of scenery! We can't even imagine the change from one to the other. He was in a place of ruin. Paul warned. He said, But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Perdition means ruin. Ruin. An eternity full of ruin. Now don't misunderstand me. I didn't say purgatory. I did say perdition. The rich man became the destitute one, didn't he? The places were changed. He was the one crying out for, for relief, not Lazarus. Lazarus no more begged for the crumbs that fell from the table of the rich man. Back on earth, the rich man lived in a mansion and now Lazarus is waiting for his. Where do you think Lazarus, again, slept at night? I think of that when I think of him waiting for his mansion. I wonder if he could see stars at night when he slept. I've mentioned this before, but when I was in India last year, we were staying in a little hut thing, and at night I could look up and I saw the stars, and I told my friend, I said, I don't think this is a good thing. I'm looking through the roof here. I see stars. It rains every day. See, I don't think Lazarus even had that. But you know, now he's waiting for something that's coming. It's called a mansion in the King James Version of the Bible. It's a place of dwelling. It's better than a mansion. These two very different people who are now in two very different places, they led to two very different prayers. That's our third point made on behalf of the rich man. The first prayer was one of relief. The rich man lifted up his eyes being in torments. He, he needed some kind of relief. He He spoke out to Father Abraham. He said, Please send Lazarus that he might dip his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. Boy, the tables had changed and and now you go from a man that had everything to, to a man that wanted almost nothing but he was begging for it. Boy, how similar is that? Lazarus begged for crumbs that fell off of the table Now the rich man was begging for a drop of water that might fall off of the finger of Lazarus.
I want us to notice, though, that his attitude never changed. Didn't he still look down upon Lazarus like he was some kind of a servant for him? That he needed to send Lazarus to, to help give him what he felt like he needed? He needed Lazarus to go work and do for him when he had never done that for anyone else. He was still selfish right to the core. Let me tell you, hell doesn't change that. Hell doesn't change that. It's always about him and never about anyone else. Notice that when he was told that there was a great gulf fixed between he and Lazarus, and that Lazarus couldn't leave paradise to go to him, not that I would think anybody would want to do that, but neither could the rich man leave the torments of Hades and, and come to Lazarus, come to paradise. He said, well... He said, send Lazarus back to the world then so that everybody might understand that you don't want to come to this place. Well, that didn't happen either. He was still a selfish man, but he did remember that he had five brethren. His prayer was one of redemption. He goes from relief to redemption and he wants his brethren, his five brethren. He's not caring about anyone else. But he knew how he was. See, he was selfish in this life and he knew they were too. And he knew they would come and join him where he was, but he didn't want that. At least he didn't want them to join him in hell. I guess maybe that is at least one redeeming point about that man. I think this is a very important point that we need to take away from this study of this account of two lives who are in eternity right now. If a person comes to the understanding that they need to obey the gospel plan of salvation... And they understand that they do that through listening to the message, listening to the words of God, listening to the inspired Scripture. Romans ten seventeen. That's what brings faith to us. We come to understand that we need to repent of all past sins. That's what Peter said, Acts two thirty eight. We come to the knowledge that we need to make the good confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. After all, Paul said that brings us unto salvation, Romans ten ten. Then we come to the understanding that I need to go down into the water just like the Ethiopian eunuch did. I need to be immersed in that water just like Saul of Tarsus was so my sins can be washed away. When we come to that understanding, and then we understand we have to live like Christ lived and we have to be obedient to Him and, and we have to even live through difficult times much like those in the first century did that we read about in the book of Revelation. Be thou faithful even unto death and you'll receive a crown of righteousness. See, when we come to understand that, we need to never allow anything to stop us from attaining that. But things will stop us in this world. Sometimes people come to the knowledge of the gospel and they understand what they need to do, but then they think about maybe a parent or a grandparent or a brother or a sister or someone who's gone on into eternity and they never obeyed the gospel. And it hurts them to think about that. We all have family members like that. I do. We don't like to think about that. But I know of some people who allow that to stop them from obeying the gospel. Here's something I take away from this account. If someone is lost in hell, and God's the judge of that, they don't want us to join them. Let's not make the worst possible of places somehow, and I don't understand how, but let's not make it worse, right? Let's obey the gospel plan of salvation. We need to prepare for eternity. Are we preparing for eternity? Are we looking toward the day when, 
when all people will stand in judgment before the King of kings, the very Christ who came to earth and died and who rose again and gave Himself for us? Am I looking forward to His appearing? Paul was, wasn't he? 2 Timothy 4 verse 8. Am I doing that? I don't believe that the rich man realized that Lazarus was having an effect on his eternal life. I don't think he realized as he passed him day by day, ignoring him or whatever it was he was doing. I know he wasn't helping him. I don't think he realized at that time or else he didn't care, which may be the better scenario, that Lazarus was having an effect upon him. The rich man prepared every day of his life to go to hell. He prepared for that. He worked for that. He prepared to be lost while he was studying how to be selfish. The whole book of Ecclesiastes is about going where we prepare to go. Usually when we go somewhere, we have made preparation for that, right? On occasion in this life, we can get a little bit lost. But for the most part, we go where we prepare to go. We don't all of a sudden wake up one day, die, and then prepare to go to either one or the other places in the Hadean realm. That simply does not happen. We prepare every single day. Paul told the Romans in chapter 6 that they would spend eternity in the exact same place where their master would live eternally. Satan was a rich man's master and, and he got what he worked for, Romans 6.23. He studied how to be selfish his whole life. He went where selfish people go. Unloving, self-centered, non-compassionate people. That's what he did. Lazarus, on the other hand, looked into eternity. He prepared for eternity. He prepared himself to go where godly people go. He didn't get any credit in this life. But his possessions, they were laid up in heaven, weren't they? Matthew 6.20 I want us to keep in, in the forefront of our minds that there are no second chances when we enter into eternity. We've got all the time in the world as long as we're in right now, don't we? Because that's all we really have is right now. I want us to understand also that Lazarus, he didn't go to paradise because he was a poor beggar, because he didn't have good health. That's not why he went. He went there because that's where he wanted to go. That's where he chose to go. Are we pre preparing for eternity? The choices we make in this life impact the next, don't they? Prepare for eternity. Obey the gospel plan of salvation if you haven't done that. If you have, you've become unfaithful. Come back to the Lord. Prepare for eternity. If you need to answer this Lord's invitation, let that be known as we stand and as we sing.